0: Hello, hello everyone, and happy new year. We're back. Just wanted to start off and thank everyone who's been so supportive and shown us so much love. We appreciate every single one of you, which is why we're starting off your new year with one incredible guest and their story who we actually discovered by happy accident. Let let me set the stage. You know, one of the greatest challenges in this current generation is that we often feel untouched or disconnected by the problems of others and by global issues like climate change. We do not feel strongly enough that we are part of a global community, part of a larger we. Giving people access to data most often leaves them feeling overwhelmed and disconnected and not empowered and wanting to do action this is where art can make a difference and i did not truly understand that until i visited the famous smithsonian museum of natural history in washington dc in the united states of america for those who don't know what the smithsonian is it is one of the world's most popular natural history museums dedicated to understanding the natural world and our place in it while i was wandering around the museum with my friend My attention was drawn to one of their new exhibits, where the Smithsonian turned to art, and not science, to hammer home a warning about this climate crisis. In this new exhibit titled Unsettled Nature, they featured artists from around the world as they reflect on the age of humans in relation to the earth. This was the first art exhibition of its kind in the museum's 111 year history where the staff decided that because the climate crisis was so complex they didn't want to provide a single answer to this problem but instead wanted people to conclude that at the root of the problem is our relationship to nature and the environment. It was within this exhibit that my mind was blown by one art installation in particular, and it was called Flying Gardens of Maybe by Andrew S. Yang. Hey, this is
1: Jordan. And this is Mimi. And welcome to the Imperfect Ecohero Podcast, the series that connects community, normalizes imperfections, and empowers heroes.
0: So what was Flying Gardens of Maybe? Well, this piece stood out compared to every other piece in this exhibit because of its striking and enthralling collection of vivid images of birds, seeds, and plants interspersed with mirrors on top of this collection of those same plants in front of it. You know, the artist was exploring the literal collision between migrating birds and man-made structures. You know, nearly a billion birds die annually after hitting windows, and the seeds they would have dispersed also become lost with them. I didn't know that. And so Andrew collected those birds and removed the seeds from their stomach, giving them a second chance at life in this makeshift garden. It was thought-provoking and chilling where the mirrors almost implicated the viewer, me, in this process. And while at the same time providing this glimmer of hope as well with the circularity of life. So I knew I had to share it, you know, on our Instagram page so all of you guys can be amazed by this piece of art too. And I had no idea that it would have led us here today, getting the opportunity to chat with Andrew himself about this piece and about his entire body of work. Andrew Yang is Fascinating. He is a Chicago based artist that draws on his dual background in biology and visual arts to create work that examines the clash between nature and culture. Andrew holds a PhD in biology from Duke University and an MFA in visual arts from Leslie University College of Art and Design. He is also an associate professor at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago and recently is the artist in residence at Yale and NSU College. Andrew uses his art to challenge our perspective to think about the changes we make daily on our planet. Today's episode will delve into that and more as we talk about the power art has in helping us better see climate change and better connect emotionally with the enormity of climate change and all of its intersecting parts.
1: Hi Andrew, we're super excited to have you on today. Jordan's smiling, because that's how I start every interview by saying how excited I am. But I think it it's holds true. It holds true for every guest. Um, and especially you, because you've done some really, really incredible work. So I'm just gonna open it up by asking you to tell us a little bit about your journey. I know you're a biologist and an artist. So a little bit about how those two arrive in your work. Mm-hmm, um yeah. yeah. So I'll just I'll let you
2: get started. Okay. Yeah. Thanks a lot for having me on the show, Mimi and Jordan. I really looking forward to this um yeah so yeah my background is in both like visual arts and biology so i have a a phd in biology but i also have an mfa in visual art and um you know i've always been really interested in those areas Uh, you know growing up i didn't really see them as distinct but then of course once you get to college you have to start making these kinds of choices so i ended up doing most of my education in the sciences and then uh, upon getting my PhD, I, I then actually intentionally started to apply for jobs at art schools because I continued to have an, an art practice. Uh, but I just thought th- that was the kind of environment and the kind of students and the kind of colleagues I wanted to have. So I, I really made a, a considered effort to um, seek out positions in those kinds of schools. And that's how I ended up where I am now, which is uh, the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. That's actually really fascinating is that
0: kind of how you kind of went through this journey where you now study like the clash between nature and culture through
2: art Mm -hmm. but also biology (laughs) yeah I mean yeah wow what a complex question yeah I mean yeah I think so yes and no maybe I teach insect anatomy actually I know almost nothing about human anatomy but uh, my specialties back in the day when I was trained as an evolutionary biologist is like insect form and i I studied in a in a lab that um professor's specialty was actually understanding the evolution of butterfly wing patterns and so i've always been really interested in this idea of like the evolution of form and so that actually to me was very natural to think that oh i i study the evolution of of um Visual and, and morphological form, albeit in insects. But then, you know, the art, sculpture, design—that's also just fundamentally a, a questions of form. So I, I think about these things in a kind of philosophical way. That way, but um, and it's it's interesting too. You know, um, one of the most popular classes I teach at the art school actually is called Insect World. It is about—it's a field course about insects. We go collect them. They learn about insect anatomy, and a lot of my former students have turned out. Then trans, you know, going to the museum later to work either as collection experts or as scientific illustrators or as people who do science communication. So there's this, you know, really, I think through natural history especially, a tight and abiding connection to art and science. And so it's been really good for me here in Chicago to be able to also work with places like the Field Museum of Natural History, um, because I think there's more of an understanding that uh, these are very complementary fields that were once united. It's really cool that that you're
1: finding your students are are exploring these other worlds outside of the art world and really enjoying it. Mm-hmm. Uh, coming from our podcast, something that's really obvious to me is how both art and science are so intertwined with nature. So it's not just mm-hmm. art, art and science intertwining themselves. It's nature being that common thread.
2: Right. Yeah. Oh, and that gets to Jordan's other question about this sort of clash between nature and culture. It's funny you mentioned that, too. I was just looking back um on this exhibition i curated this last fall with my art historian colleague Giovanni Aloy called Earthly Observatory. And right now we're looking at the transcript of like a conversation we'd had and we're talking very much about how certain artists we had included um, in that exhibition was very much about trying to think about both that question of intermingling, but also clash, right, of sensibility. So there's a artwork by that was in that exhibition by this artist, Mark Dion, where he goes to the Smart Museum of Art at University of Chicago, but he goes with a bunch of volunteers and they look for all of the microorganisms they can find in the museum, which of course is like an anathema to the art museum. That's the very last thing they want anyone to look for, much less find, right? Because art is a cultural space and creatures are a natural space. and. The, never the two shall meet so you know mark's work is so wonderful because he's always trying to sort of um critically and playfully ask these questions about these kinds of spaces and say really is a cultural space really just cultural or can it be natural can my work as a cultural producer as an artist be also natural history at the same time yeah so i I think you know it's been really exciting uh, working at this intersection because i think the art is you know very traditionally has been seen as a very uh, cultured space of the human, and of course the world of science of the non-human. But of course it's a continuum. The the extent to which we assume and assert that division is what's gotten us into a lot of the big problems we have right now. <laughs> and so I think every effort has to be made to re-engage uh, to you know re-engage each ourselves, to invite ourselves, to invite others to actually understand that relationship and that dependency. One of the things that I'm really
1: curious about with all of our guests is how they understand their relationship with nature because i i find that so fascinating the way humans understand how to navigate through the natural world and with you mm-hmm. especially as both an artist and a scientist and an educator too mm-hmm. I, I like yeah i'm curious about how your relationship with nature like first of all what it is and mm-hmm. second of all how it um influences all of these different worlds that you're a part of and not just the different worlds but how these worlds intersect and even clash
2: uh yeah that's that's the million dollar question and i think you know i i myself am nature too right and but then i'm not in other times and other circumstances right and so the the thing about one's relationship or understanding to nature or to culture or otherwise is that you know these things are always relational and they're always contextual and so and again that's really complex so i think um my understanding of nature again is is also context dependent. I mean, one thing I'll say just as a preface is, you know, my childhood definitely had a, a major influence in the way I think about nature and and the way in which I also I think I don't, I never had that tendency to think of nature and culture in opposition or science and art in opposition. I mean, I was raised on a seventy acre farm in kind of semi rural Massachusetts, and both of my parents are scientists, but um my father's a physician but he also you know we had 18 heads of cattle and four horses and pigs and so i grew up in a place where i got to interact with all kinds of animals all the time but also uh, in a household where people thought very analytically about things in another way and so i think um my relationship to nature has always been premised on this notion of like uh, intimacy right of actually having contact with the natural world with organisms and and I really was very lucky to have that growing up and then so when I became older and I start moved to cities like Chicago um, that I you know there is extent to which I feel very alienated from my notions of nature and that kind of intimacy or connection because it's it's much more mediated it's much more limited right In, in different ways and so a lot of the artworks that I do also grow out of that tension of me, sort of sometimes nostalgically, but I think also sometimes very, um, you know, heartfelt and in the moment needing more of that connection, and so uh, that shows up in the kinds of the works I make. I mean, one one I did that I think about a lot in that regard, also in terms of what we think about nature, is even this piece I had done called "The Beach for Carl Sagan" for the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago, and it's it's these sand dunes that of the kind you would find. So i installed these land sand dunes in like the art the, the museum of contemporary art and they look like the kind you'd find on lake michigan but I'm all, it's also playing off of this metaphor of the um of carl sagan that you know if we take one grain of sand as a star then you know all the grains of sand i can hold in my hand are probably all the stars you can see in the night sky in chicago i can see almost no stars in the night sky <laughs> i had, um and i grew up with uh the sky being filled and suffused with them I, I was reading when my child was maybe three my daughter i was reading a book to her actually and it was a collage book and at one moment in the book a child's looking up and there's the collage has all these little white dots as the stars in the sky and my daughter was like what what's that what what are they pointing at and i'm like well what do you mean honey like those are the stars in the sky and she's like the sky doesn't look like that of course being raised in chicago i realized she had actually never seen a sky and it's so deeply like uh, uh kind of almost hurt me to think that her relationship with nature in that most fundamental way that we're just one of among billions of planets and billions of stars right uh, that she doesn't have that connection growing up in the city that i had and so making that artwork that sort of represents the milky way you can't see the 200 billion grains of sand is like these 200 billion stars is kind of Again, trying to both um, uh, recognize that in maybe some sort of pseudo poetic way, but also, you know, there's some melancholy there <laughs> for for what you don't have as a connection to nature. And so a lot of the work is my own attempts, I think personally to regain some intimacy with the nature, connections to nature, I don't feel like I necessarily have in the city otherwise, but also to sort of um, invite other people to think about those things too. It's funny when, we were, when I was prepping for this, Um, interview I thought about
0: landscape photography landscape art is one of my favorite go-to when I'm in museums when I'm taking photographs like nature like you said like there's something about capturing that intimacy especially when you're the person which was which is why I love photography like it's you're experiencing it and you're trying to show the beauty of nature through it but I realized like now when I go to art museums or just museums in general and I see landscape photography or see like nature in art, I can't like, it's now, I now don't just get the enjoyment from seeing it. I now am reminded about climate change and I'm mm-hmm. curious for you throughout your like artistic journey up until now has the way that you portrayed art, uh, nature in your art changed as you've learned more about the mm. climate crisis
2: yeah i think definitely so i think one other thing about landscape i'll just say that i think it's interesting what you said about photography you know this is the picture you see and it represents sort of your point of view and then i think with landscape what's really interesting is that question of control right because like landscapes are something also that like how much of a landscape is something you know the the photograph has this amazing ability to help you capture something just as you see it but then um that's assuming that you can actually capture it with the weather and the clouds and everything else there's there's all this uncertainty i think landscape's a really interesting place to think about like our tendencies to want to control the world versus just like let it be and observe the world so climate change and the human induced climate change and and then human induced biodiversity loss that's that's definitely motivated a lot of my recent work um, you know, there are a lot of installations that look at the question of like, how landscapes have changed over time, both naturally and quote, unquote, unnaturally through human forces. And that, that there's also uh, works that really look at the relationships of us to other organisms, specifically in like urban settings. I know that you had seen that artwork called Flying Gardens of Maybe at the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History. So that project, which is pretty long running, definitely engages some of those questions in regards to birds in the city, but not just birds all of the plants that those birds carry in the form of seeds and really trying to make visible some of those complexities of ecosystems and landscapes, right? Birds are agents of the landscape. They carry these seeds that they eat from the plants and then, you know, they poop those seeds out, giving those plants a chance to migrate and also create landscapes themselves. And so we don't think about it that way, but every time a bird is migrating, it's, it's an active agent of landscape change or landscape maintenance by creating our own landscapes of really tall skyscraper buildings and birds hitting them uh, we actually don't interrupt just the birds migration we interrupt the migration of all the plants and therefore the possibilities of the way the the landscape might transform itself otherwise so those projects were in in that case taking the seeds and growing them in pots so that you see the plants that otherwise would have grown it's trying and creating the sort of micro garden landscape is is trying to point to all of those things try to like Recomplexify, I think, what otherwise is like uh, the way that we really homogenize landscapes otherwise. Um, You know, sometimes I describe that Flying Gardens of Maybe project as uh, ecologies of interruption, because, you know, uh, but you can't shut down that ecology, but you can intervene. And the question is, are we gonna make our, what are the nature of our interventions? Like, even if you don't want to control, you're still going to change and influence things. So people didn't mean to uh, have hundreds of millions of birds die by hitting skyscrapers when they built them but that's sort of uh the un- an unintended consequence and so that's uh that's not a control but but well we could control that we could build buildings differently we could shut lights out at night so that not only birds wouldn't hit buildings but my daughter could see the night sky or many other things right and so you know, i think part of it is like trying to negotiate what is your relationship with this thing we call nature and it isn't we don't have control and we never will and these the extent we assume that we do we also um of course sell self-promises to ourselves and then disasters happen and we're like well why couldn't we have controlled that but then uh we can nudge it and it nudges us you know there's a reciprocity we are part of nature and i guess the question is like just um in this push of, and pull like it's all temporary you know, there's something also fe- ephemeral about it.
1: When I first asked you, what's your relationship with nature? The very first thing you said was in some spaces I am nature and in some spaces I'm not. And I thought that was mm-hmm. a really, really interesting way to open up your, your sentence. And I've never heard anyone say that before. I think when I'm trying to control things, whether it's nature, whether it's myself, whether it's just like external factors that I really don't have any control over, I feel like almost alien in my own body like it just doesn't feel Mm. right but when i'm Mm -hmm. letting things happen and when i'm going with the flow and you know also using my agency not saying like oh i'm just gonna let the world take me where it needs to take me like taking calculated risks and trying to um influence positively where i can that's when i feel like okay this feels a lot more natural so yeah it's just it's interesting to to wrap all of the things that you've said together yeah it's yeah it's (laughs) really cool
2: (laughs) yeah and it's about being you know i think one thing i just thought of as you were talking mimi is that you know i think the difference in agency is that there's a sense of responsiveness it isn't just that you are hatching your own plan and the and the blueprint in your mind of how the way things should be you update all of what you're doing and how you're doing it and why the more you learn right um. at every moment and so that responsiveness is really important you had sent us one of one of your own articles but you talked about
0: the possibility that artistic agency lies more in plants
2: or nature than mm-hmm. with you as the artist it's like you know um maybe this project wasn't my idea it's the pro it's in a sense quote unquote the idea of the birds or the plants like why am i so compelled to do this project like um i could think of it in terms of my own artistic intention and creativity and oh i'm going to do this very clever thing and but um there's something else much more viscerally that's happening like why am i so interested in pursuing that like there's something about the birds and the plants and the seeds that's compelling me and drawing me in to this practice and maybe they're actually asserting their own kind of agency uh on me and i'm actually the vehicle for plants and seeds to also help us reimagine another kind of relationship. <laughs> I know that sounds kind of hocus pocusy to a lot of people, but, um, you know, I I refer, I think in that essay to this really great chapter Michael Pollan has in his book, The Botany of Desire, where he says, look, you know, plants, if plants would think of a strategy to like increase their um, reproduction on the planet, it would be to like be pretty. And like, so he talks about roses and apples and all of these things as actually maybe being the true agents of domestication and they're sort of fulfilling their own desires through us. But of course we tell ourselves the narrative story that it was our idea. And, you know, I think there is something to that though. It's very important. Once you start thinking in systems, you think relationally. And when you start thinking relationally, you have to consider the possibility that I'm not always the only agent. I'm not always the one making the first decision or, or the first gesture uh you know, after the fact we tell ourselves, oh, it was it was me, it was my thought, it was my idea. But it could be, of course, if we are a part of nature, that it's communicating to us also in very subtle ways. Um, so I, I think it's important for artists and designers to also think about like, oh, maybe there are cues we're being given. Like I sometimes think like this project's actually really about plants and birds trying to sort of like make visible <laughs> their own plight in another kind of way like with the same kind of intention i do as a human no but that doesn't mean it's not agency you know we have a very anthropocentric way of considering um cause and effect and as a scientist i know that many notions of our cause and effect ideas are are flatly wrong that's the beauty of what science has helped us discover is like are all of our anthropocentric notions of how things happen are are usually incorrect and and it could be another case of that <laughs> um you know, one one thing this makes me think. I recently gave a talk at the Smithsonian about that project, and someone asked in a question in the chat that I didn't get to. Like, how do you know if this project is successful? Like, is this project changing someone's mind? And you know, it's it's humbling to think like, yeah, I don't know. You know, again, it's an art project, not a design project. But even if I was design, I am. Des- there are elements of design, and and the thing is, a lot of the gestures that we're going to make. We don't know their outcomes, or the outcomes aren't going to become apparent for much, much longer. And I think that's a big challenge for all of us thinking about climate change or biodiversity loss is like, um, we want to make sure what we're doing has an impact. Uh, But again, that's also like a symptom of control. Like, I think we should do our best to try to have to do things that are impactful, but we can't always see the fruits of that right away. That short-term thinking is the business of usual thinking of short-term profit, of short-term expectations that again has gotten us into. So if we were to slow down our expectations, what would be different? Like the Flying Gardens of Maybes called that because like half of those seeds I plant don't sprout. (laughs) And some of those seeds I put into bird feeders and the birds carry them on. Now, is that going to assure that a species of plant actually survives? uh you would say no that's a pathetic my my artistic friend kate like says like that's that's the pathetic artistic gesture um so like oh this is so low impact this isn't actually doing anything but you know like evolution of life on the planet earth is like a series of things that shouldn't have happened statistically and yet they did like everything that matters in the world an asteroid hitting us 65 million years ago was a complete matter of like one single chance operation and everything so many things are so like unfortunately i think everything we do matters um, we shouldn't put you know undue pressure on us but i think that's where we can g- gain a lot of our agencies to understand that like actually maybe that one little seed making it somewhere will save its species like maybe that one mutation did make a difference maybe that one i guess that, i guess some people call that the butterfly effect huh <laughs> in evolution we call that contingency or we call that chance but like everything on the world is like built on chance that's basically nudged one way or the other one of the things that Jordan and I really
1: talked about when we were first starting this podcast was this idea of perfectionism and then imperfectionism, which is what we wanted to like uh, amplify and, and promote to to our listeners and our community. But kind of what you're saying in, in that answer is that if you're not obsessed with production and results and impact in that anthropocentric way that we've all been taught, you kind of not necessarily reduce the amount of pressure that's on you but you're more more susceptible to just like being okay with what whatever results you see and whatever results you don't see because you you may not see all of the results right so i'm yeah. i'm just wondering if the way you understand that relationship with knowledge and and nature if that takes away the pressure of being a perfectionist for you mm-hmm. If you if you suffered at all from perfectionism, but I think as oh, yeah, humans sure, tend sure. to, yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, it's it's really hard, right? I mean, I think it's not. There's still the the, the there's still though the um, goblin of perfectionism in terms of like, well, did I do the best I could do? I know I can't do it perfectly, but did I do it to its utmost? Because because I think like if you're a perfectionist, you understand too that it isn't just like how well you did it, but like when you did it. And you're like, oh, did I just do that at the right time? And um But again, like that, you have to have some humility about that. I mean, for better or for worse, like as a teacher, it's been interesting because there are some certain students I had who at the time they're taking my classes hated it. Like you could tell they hated the class or they disliked me or something. They wrote a really bad review of my class. And then some of them I've, you know, have come back like two years later and said, you know, I really disliked your class, but now, it's been so meaningful to me, like it's one of the best classes I ever took. It just took me six years to figure that out. And you're like, wow, uh, thanks. <laughs> like that would have been I mean, it's both great and horrible because you're like, oh, my life was miserable then. And so uh, sometimes maybe it's like that's one way to I guess, you know, anyway, so it's hard not to still be a perfectionist. I, I think I just want to say I love the t- one thing that I really when I first heard about your podcast that I loved about it was the title Imperfect Hero." Because I think you also like laid out the contradiction. The hero is the is um, I mean, depending on what uh, what narrative tradition you're in. I mean, heroes are often flawed, but the idea of the heroic is like seems to be aiming towards perfection. And um, the, this idea that you're like acknowledging the imperfection, I think, is so important because it's like we are. We're just doing our very best, or you know, we we should do our very best, but we also have to just at some point, um, you know give up some control because i think the, that control can also make us then continue to meddle too much in certain things like um so that's i think that's the thing with geoengineering we want to perfect you know we have this 1.5 degree centigrade envelope that we want to live in and that our civilizations evolved in um, That even but if you know um that it's not going to last forever, forever either way like, so if we're not changing climate now through geoengineering, um, when another ice age comes, we're gonna try to change it some other fashion. And so it's like, we have these imperfect intentions, we have an imperfect understandings, and we're always updating them. So yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'll just say like, I think what's interesting about being an artist or an educator in general, and I'm sure for you guys as creative podcasters, is like you're making mistakes all the time. And so it's just the matter of learning from them and and trying to, To do better, it's like uh, what's the phrase I recently learned? You know, they say practice makes perfect. Recently, someone introduced me to the idea that um, practice makes progress, (laughs) and I'm like, oh, I like that a lot better. You know, like, um, you know, there there is no perfect because nothing's static. I think that's the other thing just to mention. If you're going to talk about ecology or climate or anything, there's nothing that's static. Like, we don't live in a perfect harmonious world, and there's no optimum. And I think that we have to embrace that messiness. Uh, um, I know for us,
0: I think what often helps us with the whole imperfection piece is that we're not either episodes. We're never trying to solve something. We're never trying to provide people with an answer to a burning problem. Do you think art in general should provide answers? And then like, what is the goal in your Mm -hmm. art just in
2: general? Yeah, I mean, there's many goals. I think the thing is like every given piece, or project that has multiple layers to it and so i do i am designing certain things about the project that will be legible and i think easy to understand if you spend a minute with it and don't read the title but oh if you read the title then oh now you're understanding something slightly different oh if you read the materials then you're like oh wait a second this is about something else altogether and then you know so each project there is the intention that actually it's a bit of a um hopefully it's complex and that different people will get different kinds of things out of it depending on how much time they spend or what kind of thought they give to it and that hopefully there's even something that i get out of it like later there's a there's a project that i did a couple years ago and someone was asking me about it and i was explaining it and then all of a sudden i realized something like profoundly different about the artwork then i'm like oh you know what i was actually i think i was actually really concerned with this whole issue and i didn't even realize it like I was subconsciously working through this whole other issue. And five years later, I'm talking to you about it. And I finally understand what this artwork was about. It was about all of these things, but it was about this whole other thing too, motivating me that now like in talking about it, it's, you know, it's almost like psychotherapy, you it's revealed to you. But um, so it does, it has like many, so I'll just say this, like, I think artwork should have many intentions and many possible messages, but you can't assume, and you shouldn't try to control what all of them are. And I'm really happy when people come to me later about something they've seen in a museum, and i are like, "Oh, you know, this is what I thought," and I learned something very revelatory. Because the artwork isn't supposed to be an answer, yeah, it's supposed to be a catalyst. It's supposed to create an opportunity to reconsider things, rather than just say any particular thing. So if I want to say a particular thing, you know, I can be a politician, um, or uh, but if I want to invite questions for myself and other people, then I can make an artwork that's complex, that's contradictory, that isn't fully resolved. Do you find you spend just as much time
0: devoting like, to like your art asking a question as much as, for example, giving a title and the description? So I'm going to say personally, yeah. when I saw your work in the Smithsonian, which is how we even found you in the first place, like, the first thing that got me was the title. Mm. I found the title even before I saw it. I was already thinking and like it was already thought-provoking. What does Flying Gardens of Maybe even mean? Like it, it's such like it was such an interesting title. And then I obviously looked at the piece, and that also engaged different feelings to to the listeners in the art piece that I saw. There were mirrors as well. And so you often saw yourself reflected back,
2: which mm-hmm, was interesting
0: because yeah. it I First thought it was to represent the the glass that birds would uh yeah, crash into. into but then yeah. all of a sudden you see yourself too and you're just like okay but it, it, I'm, am i also to blame like it, it almost mm-hmm. felt like it was implicating the viewer and then i read your description of
2: it and then it added like all these layers like is that yeah, i definitely pay a lot of attention to the titles and a lot of attention to all even though I know that 80% of the people will look at it and never read the title, but for someone like you who does, then great—that that opens up another possibility, you know. So you're just creating uh, encounters; you're just creating situations of encounter in an artwork, and those situa- or a podcast or any way, anything. You're setting up a situation of encounter, and that encounter has possibilities, and you're just trying to set up as many different possibilities as possible. In a way, <laughs> right? How do you handle when people discourage or
0: close the door on ideas with your art what how, one, how does that make you feel and like two like how, what do you what do you do about it
2: yeah I try not to take it personally I mean it's hard not to feel rejection sometimes but I think often it, it has to do not with me but with other people's like professional roles and other things so you know I just move on to the next door and if there is no other door then I put that idea on ice until the possibility of it might be you know have some traction somewhere else so there's a lot of ideas for projects i have that i've had to like put on ice because um they're you know there just weren't receptive collaborators and so I, I i bide my time a little bit and wait till um, or i think of another approach um and so you know sometimes i was doing a project actually about plastics in uh, the history of plastics and plastic manufacturing and pollution in, in Massachusetts, and so waste not, what not,
0: or waste no. not, what not. Yes. Yeah, uh. I I remember <laughs> them telling you your titles. They they really stick with me. It was right. No,
2: yeah, K O N T. Um, yeah. and so part of that for me was to actually I'm like, well, I want to learn about plastic manufacturing. I'd grown up near a town that was famous for it, that had invent that pink flamingo lawn flamingo had been invented there (laughs) if you can believe it that's its name to fame um so i literally just went i would drive up to plastics factories and knock on the door and and try to engage people in conversation and sometimes like literally one person was very angry and aggressive and he he thought that i was trying to steal some sort of trade secret um another person was like it was clear that maybe um yeah and, and in other cases they they were I had to then just knock on the next door then I would I would knock on the door and they um they they shut the door on me like you're you're not in a plastics industry professional I'm not going to talk to you so then I'd call them up later um being kind of a different person asking a different kind of question and then they would say okay sure you can come um like if you want to interview me that's fine so I sometimes will just take different approaches, but I I literally that day knocked on like three different doors of plastics factories and and one finally let me in. They're Like sure hey can they want to show like their whole photo book of the history of their factory and I just had coffee with them and hung out for three hours, you know. um, Just to get to know people so um, because they're excited they they were excited they wanted to share that with me and the other people didn't and that's fine like I, I don't take any of that personally so. What I loved about your answer was, yeah, you
0: you realize that it's not that, that people don't want to help, and it's not that people don't want to mm-hmm. share their stories. It's just we have to go about it in a way that will make sense to them and to they, them. that they feel yeah. safe. Yeah, and that they feel safe and comfortable to want to share it with you. And like you said, mm-hmm. the moment you did and res- that...
2: And respected.
0: Yeah, exactly. And then that you yeah, had you coffee know. with you.
2: And it was great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's hard because it's like you do want something, and so how it, it also, it's like... You have to check yourself. You're like, oh, am I just being extractive? They have something I want, and I want to, or do I want to at least have some kind of relationship of like mutual respect to that? Even if we're strangers, like, how do you do that? Even if it's a, a very brief or ephemeral thing, there are ways to do that, you know, without, but it's hard because it's like you have an idea or you want something from some, some situation. It's hard not to be extractive and to slow yourself down and sort of reframe. So it's like, it's often not the what, but the how. But the how is also your own sensibility. It isn't just like, oh, okay, I'll knock on the other door. I'll knock on the other door. I'll break through the window. That would be like the dark side of getting what you want. But I think what, what uh, then there's this other approach of like, just, oh, I have to reframe how I'm even thinking about this. For you, has that happened as you've approached different people for imperfect ecohero, hero, different kinds of guests or different kinds of questions that you want to to tackle and you had to sort of like um, find another way or
0: I would say it's definitely happened in the sense like as two you know white Mm -hmm. cis women the whole goal of our podcast is to have other people have people share their stories like give a spotlight to people and stories that aren't normally given a spotlight in you know the climate movement and often what I found is hard sometimes is that you know, I, there are people that I admire, and there are people that I think would be fascinating, and I'll reach out. And a lot of times I hear nothing back. And right. then the people that we do hear back from often tend to be other white, cis, mm-hmm. or right. other privileged. Right people and so something that we just recently talked about um me me, Mimi, and our transcriber alex was like how do we bring in other diverse voices onto the podcast this year Mm -hmm. but not like you said be extractive Yeah, yeah how do
1: we how do we build that trust right like yeah i think for us jordan and i and alex we know that this is a safe space and we know that our intention isn't to hurt anyone but we we know that there's other systems yeah. at play, right? And we know right. that, you know, the environmental world in general hasn't always been and still isn't inclusive, mm-hmm. right? So how
2: right. That's
1: right. how do we build that trust, right? And that mm-hmm. there's no easy answer to that. That's just something that we're navigating, and and right. also we don't want to cross the line into tokenism either, right? Right. So yeah, that's yeah, right.
2: yeah. Yeah, and it's very hard. It's, it's it's a really important challenge to try to navigate. I mean, and as in curating these exhibitions and also making sure there are diverse points of view and perspectives, uh, in the artists that you know we exhibited, but also even the different panels and other events we had. Yeah, you're you're always really um, trying to be respectful and aware of like all of the different kinds of dynamics at play, right? Um, and 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 how that how that affects the way people respond or don't right and and just it's just going to be a it's a really long and complex process we're in such a messy space that way in terms of um all of these different um vying priorities and and levels of sort of like mistrust and yeah worrying about tokenism that's something you know and checking one's own privilege in that regard too and also like having good intentions but really bad execution and uh or vice versa you know
1: yeah because you talk about earlier you were talking about the impact and we were kind of seeing that in a positive way but impact can also be incredibly harmful too right yeah that's
2: right yeah 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 and often that's where intention um you know your best intentions like was what's that phrase of course the uh the road to hell is paved with good intentions but um (laughs) there's this idea that yeah you know you really have to be careful what you're asking for and why, and that's just a constant um, negotiation with yourself and and like your own intentions and and what you're trying to achieve. But it's always such a moving target. It gets back to art. Gets back to art because, you know, there's that idea that it's really the artist's intention that matters. And but you know, and I still think that that's true. But it's it doesn't matter completely and solely. Like impact matters. Like if you're misread then you have some response you might have some responsibility for that quote unquote misreading like what does it mean for y- your words to be taken in a certain way it's it's such a, a a really complex thing to navigate have you ever found in any of your older
0: art pieces or maybe uh, some of the classes that you first taught like did you now looking back think maybe your execution of the art or maybe your intention with the art that was misguided but maybe didn't quite have the impact that you were hoping for like now retrospectively not
2: not um at right, the time right. yeah you know definitely i'm sure of it in terms of the art but it's i'm having to think about it when that comes to mind <laughs> certainly as a teacher oh my gosh so many times so many um failures and regrets about like oh you know having misjudged or mi- misunderstood um you know h- how something could be um taken right and i think it's it's even complex like um you know it's also a lot of that is also generational too you know there's certain ways you might think or assume uh things and certain kinds of values that can't be assumed with people who you know grew up in a, a really different way as an educator
0: you know one of your biggest fears is overstepping but do you like the fact that in art you know art doesn't need to be right. perfect no, um i
2: will that's true yeah for sure like i do feel like it's a much freer space than research science like i feel like you know, it's interesting because I can say to it's if you have been a research scientist, you understand that like 85% of your effort is failure. Like if you're doing experiments like that, it's built into it. Most of your effort goes into things that are not successful. But the thing about science is like you really hide all of that. You never show the negative results. Your the culture of research science. Now, I think it's one that like strives for kind of perfection. And like, we should have journals filled with negative results, but we don't publish them because they're not sexy. They don't get you promoted. They don't get you a grant, but like strictly speaking, the negative result is just as valuable as the positive result. And yet this culture of science as it is does wants to deny that. It's almost like you might as well be um, a celebrity, making sure your makeup looks perfect. Whereas I think in this space of art, there is a lot more liberty uh, or freedom to, you know, to to be imperfect and to and for me to not be an expert i mean i'm an expert on like actually insects and insect evolution biology very few of my projects are about that at all because like i know too much about it i'd rather actually sort of be an amateur in geology or in ornithology or i know nothing mixed to nothing about plants frankly for a scientist and and i so it's great like it gives me the freedom to like learn about things that i have no that to be naive right unabashedly naive and not have to be the expert and and hold myself or other people to hold myself to that standard and i can just be like the sort of ignorant person not to say and again not ignorant has a negative connotation but maybe the amateur my my friend uh, my artist colleague claire pentecost her website's called public amateur and she talks about the importance of the artist as an amateur who can like approach things from a place of that's lacking expertise, but has a lot of consideration and curiosity, right, and earnestness, but that you have a certain advantage in approaching something as an amateur that you don't as an expert. And I think art definitely allows for that kind of uh, inquiry in a way that unfortunately certain p- other parts of our you know, culture don't, You know, where you have to be perfect all the way through and, and errors are not to be shared.
1: I really like that because in, uh, previous guest Sarah one of the things that she really honed was this idea of like reclaiming hypocrisy like be a hypocrite mm-hmm. and like call yourself out when you're a hypocrite and it's totally okay you can still be this like quote-unquote eco hero and
0: mm-hmm. what you're saying
1: here is you know reclaim ignorance or reclaim naivete right so like yeah if, if that's you that's okay like you don't have to be mm-hmm. an expert to to have an impact
2: yeah um, or to have an uh, you know like there are issues of course with expertise and false expertise and of course like science denialism and whatever else but but there is something to it i think that the key is like is that ignorance or naivete is that a kind of like um with a chip on your shoulder are you open to like are you open to yourself being wrong it isn't Mm -hmm. just like well you know so there's different kinds of like attitudes towards having an opinion or being ignorant or whatever and i think it's just like yeah Yeah, but they're not necessarily
1: bad things, right? It's just how you navigate your ignorance.
2: And it's terrifying. You know, it must be terrifying to, I mean, it's just you put yourself out there and you try these things. But again, and also respecting when people can't do that and they don't have the bandwidth to putting yourself in hazards way. Having that bandwidth is a privilege. You know, enough things in my life are easy enough that I can take those other kinds of risks. Other people don't have that bandwidth because they have a lot of other things to deal with and so you know i respect that so and that's where it's like what it, does it mean to be heroic you know people who are heroes are often doing things you can't even recognize the heroism of because like you don't understand the full context you don't understand just how much it takes out of them or you know how much impact it has so many of those things are invisible to us thanks for listening to this episode
1: of imperfect Hero. Stay connected with us through our Instagram at imperfect underscore ecohero or email us at imperfectecohero at gmail.com. If you want to learn more about our podcast or see resources related to this episode, visit our website imperfectecohero.com.